0: I think you probably could have a loving and intimate relationship with a robot. I don't think that people are going to get too caught up in the metaphysical questions for the very simple reason that all the doubts and skepticism that you can have about a relationship with a sufficiently sophisticated robot, and that qualification of sufficiently sophisticated is important here, you could have all the same metaphysical doubts or worries about a human partner.
1: Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And right now it is 3.03 a.m. on Tuesday, 27 March 2018, an hour I've always loved in Austin, Texas with the sound of distant trains and the sense of sleeping multitudes that stretch on countless miles into the Texas distance. Right after moving here, I wrote a piece for Big Think about seeing Earth from space. The overview effect film had just been released, the footage from the ISS. And you can see each little city on that flyover, how they're all webbed together. And it's clear that everything we're doing is a creature of its own. That everything we take to be humanity is like a slime mold or something, not to slur a miracle, but at any rate, it's these Earth from space night side views that are new, a radically bizarre and novel phenomenon of this planet. And also something emergent, something that grows on its own, something in which we're all participating, but which has an agency that both transcends and is in some ways limited compared to us. They're 3 a.m. thoughts, but I really don't know how else I could introduce this episode because at the heart of the discussion about robot sex lurks the great question, what are robots anyway? Do we have choice, or are we in the imagination of cybernetic totalists and Silicon Valley data idolaters, networks of modular processes? What is informed consent? That's what it boils down to, right? If every one of us is just a tendril of the great mycelium, that we call the Anthropocene, mistaking our excretion of the necessary building blocks of that next layer of our planet for pollution. As William Irwin Thompson said, evil is the enunciation of the next level of order, meaning that we always mistake the transcendental order for chaos because our brains can't comprehend it. Our resources are only limited by what we recognize as resources, right? Right? This all bears down on some of the most interesting questions I can think to ask. And these are questions that are being tackled by a greater number of most excellent films, graphic novels, and so on, including Her, Ex Machina, Alex and Ada, the Jonathan Luna graphic novel. And that is this question about falling in love with the machine, becoming a machine. Realizing that we are the machine, maybe even getting our hearts broken by the machine. Come to think of it, Terminator Salvation addressed this issue also. Kudos, T4. I just emailed a dozen women that were recently recognized on Twitter for their work in robot or AI ethics, so hopefully we'll have a spree of episodes exploring that from every angle. But this episode is with the estimable John Danaher, co-editor of a new volume on robot sex with essays from 18 different authors or authorial teams. It's a very fascinating academic compendium of perspectives on everything from the relationship between robotic sex work and technological unemployment, to how robot sex might change the incentive structure of marriage in society, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we're going to talk about a ton of it in this episode. This was a super fun one. I'm really glad I get to share it with you. But first, I want to... Thank and recognize the new Patreon supporters that have joined the Future Fossils crew this week. That includes John Maybe, Luke Samus, Kelly Matthews, Simon Hyduk. Friends, thank you so much for joining the folks over at Patreon. I am hard at work right now, if it can be called work, on the Psychedelic Coloring Book I promised you all once I hit 100 subscribers. And that is coming. I'm actually going to serialize it and release it to you piece by piece, and it's going to be even bigger and more wonderful than I had even planned originally, and also this week Patreon and Bandcamp got both the live recording of my set at the MDMA Therapy FDA Phase 3 Trial Benefit Dinner here in Austin, but they got the recording of my two sets played at Arcosanti in Arizona last November which is easily some of the best music I've ever released it was a very well auspiced and fortunate performance Uh, everything went well and of course Arcosanti is one of the most magical places in the continental United States a true future fossil a a visionary architectural experiment that was never fully completed (laughs) It was a beautiful, awesome place to play a show, and I waited over a decade to play there. So, those recordings are now available to Patreon kids. Thank you all. I love you. Enjoy this wonderful conversation with John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog and the co-editor of Robot Sex. All right, John. It's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils.
0: It's great to be here. It's great to join you for this uh, conversation. I hope it'll be uh, hope it'll be a good one.
1: Yeah, it's you know, it's funny. It's not often that I encounter someone and their work and get excited about having them on the show, and then that person actually reaches out to me and asks if they're interested. So I I commend you on an unusually proactive. Uh, program of the endorsement of your new book why
0: don't you yeah i think uh, unfortunately i'm turning into a bit of a pathetic shill for my own product. (laughs) that's that's the problem there that's
1: that's okay it's it's uh i don't think you'll have to shill too hard it's a really you know robot sex is a really fascinating topic how did you get into this particular line of academic research and how did this book come into being
0: yeah so I mean there's a there's kind of two answers like why the topic of robot sex in particular, but then also you know what my general research vision or mission is and as is the case with many of these things, I think they only become clear in hindsight you know um so we, as I pursued particular research topics, I don't know if I always knitted them together into some grand vision, but now that I've matured to some extent in my Academic career, I think I do have a grander vision of of how it all fits in. So, in terms of that, like grander vision, the metaphor I like to use to describe it comes from a concept or idea from actually evolutionary biology, which is this notion of the the cognitive niche, Mm. which is a claim that was originally advanced by I think a couple of evolutionary psychologists in the early nineties. But I associated in particular with the work of Steven Pinker, who wrote a, a paper about this a few years ago and. Also has a nice video lecture on it, which people can watch if they they want. It's easily accessible online. It's just called the the cognitive niche uh, so the the idea there is that what is distinctive about humankind, what's interesting about humankind evolutionarily speaking, is that, as with all other organisms, we evolved to fill a particular ecological niche. but our niche was one in which cognition was highly prided, so human intelligence, problem solving ability, rationality, intellectual perception insight all these things were central to our evolution and that, that's what marks us out as distinct and different now you, you can dispute certain parts of that claim and people will by pointing out that there's more similarities we have with other animals in some of their cognitive solving abilities so if people have seen these famous videos of crows and their ability to solve problems they will maybe find that notion of the the cognitive niche being distinctly human somewhat problematic
1: but yeah, I, i've shared actually as just a, a poke in there i've shared uh, some stuff on the future fossils facebook page about corvid problem solving cuz the ability to plan a seven step puzzle and actually yeah. like, see through the seven stages i was like you know corvids have in, it seems like they actually on average have a better better like uh, problem solving and future planning skills than like people that i know which is yeah, probably yeah,
0: so yeah. at any rate, please. Yeah. yeah no, Like the, their problem solving ability abilities are pretty impressive and probably actually more impressive than some of our closer relatives like chimpanzees and gorillas and things like that. So it's, it's actually a fascinating area of your research, but setting aside the precise facts <laughs> here, the general idea I think is an interesting one that we evolved to fill this cognitive niche. And it rings true to a certain extent anyway, there, there is something uh, noticeable about human cognition and ability is being a a distinctive trait. Now, what I'm interested in is how we've used technology and how we have integrated ourselves with technology as part of further developing and elaborating on this cognitive niche. So we use our technology to reshape the cognitive niche in which we live. So new cognitive abilities, and of so that become more important and more distinctive over time or important over time. And you know, there's a lot of interesting kind of cultural history on this topic, which you can you can find. But I think what's interesting about the, cur- the current moment, the present moment, is that we have arrived at a, f- a fork in the road. This is the argument I would make anyway, whereby we may be evolving ourselves out of the cognitive niche, that our technology is becoming so advanced and so cognitively capable on its own that the relevance of human cognition in particular to the future is less clear. So some of my work has dealt with this theme in various ways. So I wrote a paper a few years ago called The Threat of Algocracy, which was about the role of algorithms in political governance and how this was taking over from human decision-making authority and replacing human decision-making authority to some extent. And humans effectively just become validators of decisions that have already been made by machines for them. And you know, I've looked at it in other areas, like work, the automation of work. And so I'm, I'm interested in general with how advanced artificial intelligence, robotics, technology is changing the human future and what the future holds for us. So I think the idea of intimate relationships with machines is a, a kind of natural outgrowth or progression of that. So that, like that's kind of the grand vision of, of where this comes from. So it's like trying to plan for the human future in light of the fact that the cognitive niche may no longer be where we occupy ourselves in the future and how technology changes that yeah that's that's the grand answer to the question there's a more mundane answer to the question as well
1: the the mundane answer is actually always fascinating part of the the conceit of this show is that if we're doing this for archaeologists you know archaeologists love the trash pile outside of the city the things that people threw away so you never know you know, you never know how it's, you know, what will ultimately turn out to be relevant. You know, and that's part of that's part of the innate anxiety of an age in which we are forced to reckon with the dynamics of complex systems because you're never entirely sure where to draw the line of relevance. But um, at any rate, I, I wanted to touch on this particular thing because in your papers on the book that you, you sent out, the introductory materials on this book, you know, you... You bring up the classic scene from Futurama of they show the old school reel "Don't Date Robots," and you bring it up in context for you know various arguments for and against robots as you know sex companion replacements. But it's it's a really useful uh, cultural touchstone, I think, for this general concern, which is that as we sort of instrumentalize the various qualities of a human being. As, as we start to interrogate our you know phenotype and break it down into a series of functions, the more totally we we sort of analyze a human being in light of a like a cybernetics model, then we're seeing the economic incentives for this come in and and just make everything that we thought uniquely human, No longer uniquely human and you know this is this has been coming at us from a multiple uh, like from a variety of angles you know you already mentioned that research into the cognition of non-human potential legal persons like corvids and, and other great apes has dented our sense of primacy in the in the cognitive world and so you know when you get into this stuff like Alan Turing saying that asking whether a machine can think is like asking whether a submarine can swim you can see that we're getting into some terrain where it becomes very fuzzy what actually distinguishes us from not only the rest of the quote-unquote natural world you know the world that is that is born beyond the scope of direct human control if not human interference but into this world of our creations, and you know, there's—I think there's a lot of really fruitful investigation along the lines of, at what point do we stop treating these things like tools and start treating them like children? But maybe that's like getting ahead of ourselves because because the rundown for this book is is so thorough and, and fascinating, and you know, the first few chapters are are just basically. You know, should we even be thinking about this? And what is the case for this stuff? So I I, want to give you an opportunity to launch a little deeper into the theory of all of this stuff. I guess maybe the question would be, how did you get from the general human technology exploration into like a living sense that sex is the area that deserves our focus, that deserves like you know, a, a collection of essays from all of these really interesting people to champion and say, look, this needs to be discussed, like now, rather than later.
0: Yeah, um, so I mean, there's a lot to kind of engage with there. But let me give what uh, the mundane answers to why this topic in particular is that I'm thinking in general about human relationship with technology. And somebody asked me if I would contribute to a collection of essays on technological unemployment and its consequences for society. And this is a topic that a lot of people have written about, and I, f- I wasn't sure if I could add anything distinctive or new to the conversation about it. But at the time, I was teaching a course on ethics and law, and I was looking a lot at the ethics of sex work and pornography. And so I was engaged with those kinds of debates. And it struck me that a lot of conversations around technological unemployment tend to focus on what we might call you know, mainstream, socially accepted or validated forms of work the automotive worker, the factory worker, who is displaced by the manufacturing robot. It tends not to focus on black market or socially illegitimate or perceived to be illegitimate forms of work. And sex work was an obvious one of those. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to explore the consequences of automation and robotics for these black market forms of labor, specifically sex work? And there had been a few people who had written about this topic already. Um, David Levy, was a famous one he wrote this kind of short uh, popular book about the future of love and sex with robots it, that's pretty much the title of it and there were a couple of other people who wrote about you know the future of the sex work industry in Amsterdam in the year 2050 how it would be po- peopled or populated by androids instead of human beings and you know I was interested in the the arguments that they were making why they thought that sex workers would be displaced by robots just as much as the manufacturing workers are being replaced by robots uh, but And I also wasn't entirely convinced that this was true. And this kind of links back into the general theme I have as well about the, the cognitive niche and the future of humans in, in relation to cognition. It struck me that there's a case to be made for thinking that sex work might be actually one of those areas that is relatively resilient to technological displacement. Because there is something perhaps distinctive and different about human to human intimacy and that kind of contact that can't be easily automated or replaced by a machine. So that, like, that was one kind of part of the argument I was presenting that like there might nursing. be a reason. Yes. So, like, there's something about the erotic labor or erotic capital that is not easily um, automated or uh, mechanized. Now, people are trying to mechanize the, the care between a a nurse and a patient. You know, there are these care robots that are being rolled out across the world. So, I'm not suggesting that people won't try to do this, but. And what I'm suggesting is that maybe there is this preference for human-to-human contact in the sexual arena. And then also the other thing that struck me was that the kinds of advances that are taking place in technology and automation and robotics are more likely going to proceed faster in other areas. You know, kind of routine, middle-income, middle-class work is easily automatable and a lot of the mainstream manufacturing labor that kind of thing is going to be more easily automatable so there'll be fewer and fewer opportunities for people in those kinds of cognitive work domains with maybe a few people who have like high paying managerial type jobs left so where are all these people who are displaced by cognitive technology going to go well maybe they're going to go to an area where there's still a preference for human-to-human contact so one of the claims I was making is that technological unemployment in other industries might actually increase the supply of people into um, sex work. I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing, but I th- just a kind of hypothesis that I wanted to put forward in that paper. So that was my original kind of gateway or entry into this, this topic. And then I, as I pursued it in more detail, I realized that you know, there aren't actually that many people writing about it. But there are a lot of people who are very interested and keen on developing this technology And this isn't surprising since technology and sex have always gone together. We've always used our technological artifacts for the purposes of sexual stimulation or further exploring the boundaries of of sexuality. In one of my papers, and I think also in a talk that I gave, I give the example of this uh, dildo that was discovered in a cave in Germany, which is 28,000 years old. Whoa! You know? That's news to me. That's awesome. Yeah. It's deemed to be the oldest uh, in existence, but you can find lots of these more recently in the archaeological record. You know, there's a suggestion that a lot of them were used in kind of religious rituals and worship, so it's not clear that they were actually used for the purposes of sexual stimulation or gratification, but they might have been, and there's... It's it's impossible to recover the past in that way, I think. I think masturbation's
1: a lot a lot more likely to be the revelation from which the religious ritual becomes the sort of concrete institution than the other way around. But
0: Yeah, no, that seems plausible. So the the cause and effect relationship here is is probably from our experiences of kind of sexual Simulation gratification, and and then that becomes a a ritualized thing. I think that seems very plausible, given the ways in which you know certain fertility rituals have uh, evolved over time and originated over time. But you know, this does seem to be the case that as soon as we've been making things, we've been making things for sexual reasons, and you can pretty much trace this throughout history. You know, we get the first mechanical vibrators at pretty much the same time as the industrial revolution. We get the first electronic vibrators very early in the uh, 1900s and the the technology of sex has kind of always gone hand in hand with other developments in technology. And there are people who claim, although I don't know if this is really a robust claim, that pornography has largely been a key driver of the modern internet and that structure. It seems that way. It seems to dominate a lot of <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, if you look at certain statistics, it's, I don't know, 30 to 40% of all internet searches are porn-related, so...
1: So, I'm, I'm writing a book right now exploring evolutionary dynamics in the context of futurism and, like, looking at what are the trends, at least locally, you know, at least in the niche that we have constructed. And then also, more generally, you look at, like, general evolutionary dynamics and, like, what, in in light of those things, can we really say about the future? And one of the things that seems fairly obvious is that from an orbital point of view not the complexity of individual organisms but the overall total complexity of the biosphere seems to have ratcheted up uh, due to the increasing complexity you know from like niche construction and niche Uh, inheritance and two things come together to create a new joint that wasn't there which is like a new opportunity and so on and so on and yet there's like that's the dry mathematical way of talking about this whereas like what you're describing suggests that there's an interior to the evolutionary process that we have ignored which is that due to sexual reproduction desire longing and in, in whatever sense that we want to, you know, talk about this in the broadest, most generic sense, but a an urge for intimacy and boundary dis- dissolution in a sexual congress seems to be key to the evolution of at least complex life. And therefore, you know, because we're living in this age where complex life has such a profound effect on even the geology of our planet and the atmosphere. That these are primary these are major drivers in the evolution of life on earth so you know you look at stuff like the transmission of stock prices across the atlantic with a telegraph cable and how they went through the extraordinary effort of laying this telegraph cable multiple times and failing until they got you know again and again until they got it right and you can almost see that as like A sexual act between one economy and another like reaching out to exchange to like create a tendril and like exchange information and there's this there's this sense in which it is this yearning for erotic union that is driving our exponentiating increase in the bandwidth of our data communications technologies and all of this other stuff. And so, you know, I'm curious how, how you account for, I mean, because, you know, you've got chapters in this book that talk about the sex robot as a, a way of treating various human conditions like like uh, physical disability or, you know, abnormal sexuality. You know, and that I guess what I'm saying is that there is there's a dimension to this that suggests that Sex as the driver or as the the motivator here is actually bringing us into these larger, more complex and more dynamic structures, and I don't know if you have thoughts. Yeah, that
0: that that, no, that 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 is interesting. It's I mean it's a little bit kind of Freudian in a way, um, <laughs> suggesting a, this kind of sexual instinct is a motivator for um, a lot of civilization. Developments and and actually this is kind of the argument in um, fu- the Futurama episode that you brought up earlier on that it, to some extent this drive for sexual intimacy is responsible for all that we care about and value and some of what we don't value about societies so th- that's the thing in that that PSA in the in the episode you know hmm. science technology religion well, politics a reduction all-
1: of the human sex drive yeah
0: but the I think the other point that you're making about This drive for complexity and the complexity of networks and the scale of networks being maybe metaphorically, but also perhaps not just metaphorically, part of a kind of a sexual drive, a drive for some kind of erotic union is an interesting idea. And I can certainly see some... Credibility in that because the sexual metaphor is used so often to describe or understand the process of, of cultural development. So it, um, just to give one example here, there's a guy called um, what's his name again? Matt Matt Ridley. He wrote this book called The Rational Optimist, which some people might have heard about um, about like how society is improving and one of the main ideas or metaphors within that book is that society improves because ideas have sex with one another and he talks about this a lot and it's, it's been brought up over, and over again idea sex this kind of union merging and melding of ideas as being key to prosperity and growth and you get this a little bit as well in in, in the kind of dry complex mathematics of complexity you get this idea too i don't know if you've read jeffrey West book, is it Jeffrey West's mm. book, Scale?
1: No, no, tell me.
0: There's a reason enough book, so it's looking at, he, he's trying to uh, um, work out the mathematics of scaling laws across multiple domains uh, in biology and in sort of economic development as well. So, and in cities too. So, you don't, like why, some of it's very interesting about like cities are highly economically productive places, but they actually often use less energy than... You would expect on a per capita basis so there's actually a d- decrease in the amount of energy consumption per capita in large cities versus uh, rural areas and, and why does this happen and, and why is there more economic productivity at the same time and he boiled it all down basically to these networks and branches that people are it, tripping over each other more often and they get to collaborate and merge and cooperate so that i mean there's something there in that idea of, of achieving cognitive union that is important to uh, economic prosperity and maybe there is something deeper in that about the, the drive for kind of erotic or sexual union as well um th- there was something that occurred to me before we started this conversation because of you, you mentioned your interest in evolutionary biology and history and also i've been quite interested in some of the critiques of sex of uh, the technology of sex and the, and the problems with it but uh, one thing that is often said about human beings is that And we're the only species that actually knows about the relationship between sex and fertility, you know, sex and pregnancy. There's a recent essay in Eon magazine, if you ever read that. Yeah, it's great. So obviously all animals have sex for reproductive reasons, but they aren't aware of those reasons. You know, there are reasons for what they're doing, but they're not consciously reflecting on those reasons. Whereas we do have that conscious reflection and connection. Ostensible, right, yeah. Yeah, like a common conservative critique of modern sexuality is that we've somehow lost the link between sex and reproduction. You know, due to contraception, we've broken down the link between sex and fertility. But I, I, I wonder whether we are actually just kind of returning to or recovering a more... And a primitive understanding of sexuality. <laughs> well, that's nowadays.
1: that's that's fascinating cuz I don't I don't know if you know um the historian and mythographer William Irwin Thompson, but he's a really fascinating guy who's written some on sex in a post-industrial and meta-industrial world culture. And you know, he sees all of this in light of the total like quantification commodification and industrialized replacement of biological function by the machine. So, you know, he's actually, you know, he's looking at this in terms of the ways that human reproductive ability is challenged by the toxicity and stress of our modern environment and how uh, as we... Defocalize basically as our contemporary society dissolves the traditional views of the body with its focused, erogenous zones and its areas of taboo, D- and it dissolves it into this anarchic sort of anything goes anywhere could be. An er- and this is getting increasingly true with the idea that you know we can start hacking into the brain and rewiring it to make you know make anything uh you know the most erogenous part of your body and everyone's gonna have i can imagine this like uh radiating diversity of sexual strategies as we get more and more control over our nervous systems you know and that you know it's already the case that each of us has our own special sort of you know different strokes for different folks but it could get to a point where it really is it's almost like PGP encryption like you got to have your private key and I don't know anyway the point is that he's you know he's looking at this in terms of our movement into both the light and dark side of this boundary collapse between the biological and the machine worlds to the point where we rely on machines for not just sexual gratification but reproduction And, like, you know, what happens to us psychologically in that world. And and he makes a really interesting uh, case about this back in the 70s and 80s. And then, you know, you look at, at least in the United States, over the last 40 years, the sperm count in men has dropped by, like, 40%. You know, and we can see that the uh, permeation of artificial hormones into the groundwater is starting to show... Artificial estrogen levels in in men—it's leading to all of these, you know, subtle and poorly understood social consequences. So there's this sense in which it really does feel like we're moving out of this sense in which we have civilized sex, you know, and into this insane where the pre-modern and the post-modern world look more alike, like you're saying mm. here, where it's like we are kind of approaching more of like a uh, a, a sexual wilderness here <laughs> where we can't expect to import all of our modern standards and values into these new spaces.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, so, I mean, That's an interesting way of framing it in terms of this um, alliance between the pre-modern and the post-modern. I like that idea. So I, I think it has been true for a very long time in human history that there has been a kind of dominant meta-narrative of what is healthy and permissible sex. Effectively for most of the Christian era this is sex between a man and woman within a marriage Um, whereas since probably the 1950s we've seen we've undergone something of a sexual revolution where we've disaggregated the concept or idea of of sex and we've recombined it in new ways so that we don't have this single meta-narrative of what is permissive and healthy sex anymore now of course, it lingers in the background, and it lingers behind all criticisms of the technology of sex, be it through you know, pornography or sex toy market. There, there's a, there is that fear that we are further disintegrating this classic model or idea. But uh, you know, in many ways, what we're doing is possibly recovering an, a more ancient and more primitive understanding of sexuality. There are like interesting cultural histories written about you know, ancient Greek societies or tribal societies and their approach to sex, which suggests that at least some of them had a much more kind of liberal, permissive attitude towards sexuality. You know, multiple forms of sexuality were tolerated, and sexual self-expression were tolerated and encouraged. Uh, There's an interesting book, which was recently published, which I won't be able to remember the name of now, but I have been reading it. It's, it's, I think it's called, like, Sex and the Constitution. It's a history of you know, sex laws in in America. But it starts with this 100-page history of the different cultural codes of sexuality before basically christianity started dominating the western world in the uh, fourth or fifth century mm. and it, it paints a picture of a much more kind of permissive and open attitude towards sex much more diversity in terms of the understandings of what was acceptable and we closed down after that to a much narrower conception of permissible sex and now i think we're opening out again and there's a, a thousand flowers are blooming, and so to speak, in mm. terms of what is permissible in sexuality. Now, the book that we're ostensibly discussing, we're um, <laughs> we're kind of we're dancing around the ideas of it, of which is actually fine with me. But you know, that's about one particular technological manifestation of this new diversity in sexuality. There are many, many more. And if people are really interested in this topic, there's a really good website called thefutureofsex.net, which looks at all the other kind of developments in the technology of sex. Which really do point to this picture of a much more diverse and plural understanding of what is erotic, what kind of kinks are out there, and what forms of sexual experience will be possible in the future. You know, they they look into like new forms of sex toys, virtual intersexual experiences, uh, robotic sexual experiences. Um, And they're also looking at issues around the queer movement and transgender movement and how they are expressing themselves sexually through technology as well.
1: There's a chapter in this book, and forgive me because I'm looking at this summary of contents and doesn't have all of the contributors' names associated with it, but...
0: I'll remember them, it's okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, but the, I'll...
1: The, yeah the chapter on bot induced social change on human relationships and marriages. This is like an economic article. I forget the, the woman's name who
0: wrote so, it. So, uh, yeah, it's a so. Canadian economist, Marina Adshad, I think is how you pronounce her surname.
1: Yeah, so this yeah. this whole thing, I think, serves as a really concrete example of, you know, she raises this idea that the introduction of sex bots might reduce some of the pressure in marriages on sexual compatibility between partners and that it returns marriage as an institution to an emphasis on other things be that love or economic exigency or you know whatever it is which you know to me does really seem like a decisive stride towards this You know, you say, let a thousand flowers bloom. That's like a Chinese proverb. And there is that sense in, you know, you look at the I Ching and the I Ching's always talking about the elder wife and then like the younger wives, you know, Mm -hmm. and that there's that structure of that sort of almost residual from a tribal human existence where we we are not placing all of our bet on the nuclear family, you know, like a very recent modern, not even really truly a a modern, a, a very... Contemporary not in, like it's in, like modernism per se but like a very recent late model idea and this notion that it actually does take a larger group of people to maintain a home to participate in a community and that there's a way in which as we sort of break open the orthodox and challenge the assumptions and challenge the, the traditions as we are exposed to through our participation in the internet to all of these different cultural strategies, it seems like some of our cultural strategies are more or less suited to these more tribal modes of organization. And so like some people seem to be getting along just fine with stuff like polyamory. And in in other cultures, in other like social matrices, it's just not going to work. Whereas you get more of that sort of French wife and mistress model where it's just sort of, you know, it's accepted. Like, oh, he's got his French maid sex bot and that takes all the pressure off of me to be the Madonna and the whore, you know, to put mm. it in those like very basic terms. And so you end up with these like patches. And your book actually has a ton of these where it's like, here's a way that we can sort of address pedophilia. I don't know if you want to get into that one. That's like a particularly challenging and and kind of like delicious, provocative area though.
0: Yeah. Let's, can we, we'll come back to pedophilia later. I'm I'm happy to talk about it, but but I do want to dwell on this idea, which as you mentioned, does feature prominently in that chapter by Marina Chad about, you know, the, the social changes that will be induced by this technology. And To kind of start that, or for me to start kind of elaborating on that concept, there's another book that I quite like by a guy called Ian Morris uh, called Foraging, Farming, and Fossil Fuels. So it's about three different value systems that have dominated in human history and how they have been effectively coincident with different kinds of technology of energy capture. So tribal society, the form of energy capture is foraging and hunting to some extent. But primarily foraging. In uh, agricultural societies, the f- predominant form of energy capture is farming, of course. Agricultural uh, methods of producing f- and food, and then in fossil fuel societies, obviously fossil fuels are the, the the key driver of energy capture. And with like within his book, he talks in particular about sec- values around sex and sexuality and how they have shifted over time. So from the tribal society where you have a Um, a slightly looser and more permissive attitude towards sex to an agricultural society where everything's locked down much more because there is a core family unit centered around the farm and it's important for the people controlling the farm the men as laborers to control and police the sexuality of the women in that uh, society in order to ensure that they can pass on their land, their property to the next generation. So, you know, sexuality becomes very much kind of bound up in maintaining the, the farm, the agricultural holding as the um, kind of prime source of economic value within that society. With fossil fuel based societies where you get really urbanization, much more urbanization and large city growth. You're getting a breaking away from that idea again, although it still lingers, obviously to some extent. There's there's constant overlap between these different systems of values, and one of the things that Marina and Chad has done in lots of her work is to talk about how other forms of technology are influencing and breaking down the traditional agricultural or nuclear model of the family. And so she talks about contraception initially, how that has created changes in in the structure of marriage and she makes a number of interesting claims. Like One is that the introduction of contraception led to higher quality marriages, at least for a certain cohort of people, namely well-educated, upper-middle-class people. And, and there does seem to be fairly strong evidence that she points to that suggests that this is true. Because what contraception did is it lowered the costs, economically and socially, of women having sex outside of marriage. Uh, and it also made it kind of more possible for men to have sex outside of marriage as well. And so this then removed one of the main drivers or motivations for getting married for a lot of people, particularly very young people, which was to access sexual partners. Uh, And once that motivation for getting married goes away, what is the motivation for getting married? It has to be for something else. And as she points out in that chapter, it's going to be for more uh, partnership-oriented reasons, lifelong security and stability, economic reasons, companionship reasons. These things start to dominate instead of the kind of drive for sexual satisfaction as being the the main urge. However, I mean, she points out that this is only true for a particular cohort of people who are well-educated about the effects of contraception and have access to it and so forth. So uh, this does seem to be borne out in statistics on divorce, which is that, you know, college-educated people get married much later, and they also tend to have more stable marriages in the long term. The divorce rate is much lower for that cohort of people. Whereas people from lower income, non-college educated backgrounds, this is all in the U.S. as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, um, they tend to get divorced at much higher rates. You know, the much touted like fifty percent divorce rate is largely due to those kinds of marriages breaking down. Marriage and her, like, rates her claim, are
1: going down too, though? Aren't they? Like the overall marriage rate in, yeah, uh, in the um, U.S.
0: I want to say that there's some skepticism of that, but I can't remember if I'm correct. So I think there might have been like some stabilization in the marriage rate since the 1980s, or maybe that's a stabilization in the divorce rate. Maybe I'm confusing the two. Hmm. I would, like it wouldn't surprise me at all if the marriage rate is going down. Uh, anecdotally, that feels right, and based on my own kind of experience of my cohort, my generation. That feels right as well, but I, I don't have the information or statistics on it.
1: Well, a decay um, of the traditional incentives would seem to, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and, and you know, anecdotally, again, and statistically, this seems to be true that there is more experimentation with other forms of union, like poly, as you mentioned, polyamory is becoming much more socially acceptable nowadays. And yeah, like Marina's point with sex robots is that they can perform a very similar function or have a very similar effect on marriages, which is that again if you can achieve high quality sexual experiences with a robot, sexually satisfied by a robot, that motivation for seeking out a human partner will dissipate to some extent or will have some effect on that motivation for seeking out a human partner with whom you're going to enter into this lifelong legal relationship. So why do you want to enter into that lifelong legal relationship? It's going to be for other reasons and other motivations. And again, she thinks this could actually have a very positive impact on the institution of marriage means it's less for kind of short-term, sexually motivated reasons, but and, and more for kind of lifelong compatibility and satisfaction. So and, but that, again, she thinks it'll only help people from a certain cohort of society, because presumably the technology itself will be quite expensive when it first becomes available.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. That's not the kind of thing you're just going to find lying around in the street, unless it's Los Angeles 2019 and just happen to stumble upon a pleasure model hanging out in a pile of trash cuz we've yeah, we've all seen that
0: we've got 2 years to go so <laughs>
1: yeah maybe in the next 2 years it'll be democratized so i mean the interesting thing about this one though is that this you know you don't have the birth control pill except in the most like abstract indirect sense in which the pill by chemically simulating Pregnancy is confusing the olfactory signals for a woman. This is stuff from uh, Casilda, uh, what is the book "Sex at Dawn." Uh, Chris Ryan and, and Casilda yeah,
0: yeah. Yatha, I think it's. I, the know, I know the one. book. I don't yeah. know the other. And they talk
1: book. about that in this in this book that that they found that um, the you know histo histocompatibility is confused by birth control, and so they found that women who who started dating somebody while they were on birth control and then stopped taking birth control said often they were not naturally attracted to the odor of their, their companions. Whereas like if they were not on birth control first, they had a sort of an accurate read on that sort of chemical lock and key. So only in that more like abstract sense, would you suggest that, that uh, birth control is actually competing for the sex that it's sort of liberating Uh, Or like the sexual satisfaction that it's sort of enabling. But there's a sense in which this book raises the question beyond the scope of that particular article, which is, you know, saying, you know, what are the potentially positive benefits to loving partnership if we find a way to outboard the sexual gratification? Because some of these other chapters say, what about loving robots, Mm. what about the robots that are actually providing a la more blade runner 2049 the actual experience of a loving domestic companion somebody who cares about you and while that seems so obviously much further out to the point of like armchair speculation, it's nonetheless a vital enough question to take up a a significant piece of the real estate in this book. So what are we getting into when we start asking those questions?
0: Yeah, this is really about like intimate relationships beyond sex. And, you know, even though the book is titled Robot Sex, and I guess most of the, the chapters are about that in some way or other, it was important to Myself and Neil MacArthur, who's the other editor on the book, so I should uh, mention his name. <laughs> um, he, w- you know, we we wanted it to be about more than just that. It, it, we wanted to look at other aspects of our intimate lives and how they could be replicated or facilitated through robotic technology. And so that's what kind of led to that section on could you love a robot? Now. Interestingly, the authors that we recruited to write those chapters are fairly skeptical of the notion that you could have a satisfying, loving relationship with a robot. And their reasons for this are, I would say, you know, very well supported in the philosophical literature, but I don't necessarily agree agree with them myself. But I will kind of set out what they say roughly. So one of the main ideas is like what do you need for a loving, intimate relationship? What 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 are the necessary conditions that need to be satisfied in order for you to have a, a high-quality, uh, intimate relationship?
1: Well, mutuality, a, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so the, the main claim that's made is it's some kind of mutuality. Like, it's not a one-sided, asymmetrical relationship where one partner gets everything and the other partner is left basically servicing or serving their, their needs. And right. the concern with robots is that they would not be able to engage in mutual exchange with human beings. Okay, now there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that, well, you know, what's going to be the economic model or b- behind the production of sex robots? It's presumably to give people, or robots, intimate robots more generally, to give people what they want. Okay, so you go into the love bot store and you say, I want a, a partner with all the following traits and characteristics, and they say, okay, we will custom make you a partner that has all these characteristics put them into a this robotic form whatever form you like whatever tickles your fancy it's and you can change around the parts later on if you want if your preferences happen to change you know it's all perfectly customizable at all times to fit whatever your set of preferences are so it's all about satisfying your desires and your interests and there's no there's none of that give and take and mutuality you know obviously there are forms of technology at the moment that try to do something similar when it comes to finding you intimate partners a lot of internet dating services are based around these algorithms that try to find matches for your values and interests and so forth but there's a limit to how much they can cater to your preferences because at the end of the day you will have to meet with the other person and they may not be the perfect customizable fit for your preferences but the robot could be and so there's a concern about the asymmetry of the relationship that's involved there so that's one reason for concerns about loving relationships with robots Another reason is that, and these are slightly more philosophical reasons, to ha- to be able to engage in mutuality, the robot would have to have some kind of mentality, some mental life, you know, in, be able to f- have desires, form intentions, be able to communicate those and act on those in a meaningful way with you. And some people are deeply skeptical of the notion that robots could have that kind of inner mental life or mentality, that they will always be just facsimiles or acting out a part, they, you know there won't be anything really going on behind the eyes of the robot. It's all a facade. It's all fakery. And then the other claim that's made is that in order to really have a satisfying intimate relationship with somebody, they have to freely choose you. It's not just enough for you to choose them. They have to choose you as well. So there has to be that perfect coincidence of wants and desires, to use a more kind of economic uh, term or way of putting it. And you will have that free choice in the case of the robot because the robot will be programmed to want you, to love you. I think you mentioned Blade Runner 2049 there. or Yeah, Joy. The yes.
1: Joy-K relationship, yeah.
0: So spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, you know the, the relationship between Ryan Gosling's character, who I can, what's the, his character's name, Kay, his, yeah. and his virtual companion. She's not a robot. She's a, a projection of... But you know, there are inter- interesting scenes within the film about how they try to engage in an embodied interaction which people can uh, watch if they like. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that relationship when it's portrayed on screen is quite, I, I would argue, quite touching in many ways. And, again, massive spoiler alert here. If you don't want to hear about this, switch off now. When she is shut down at the end, you know, that was to me that was quite a, an emotionally wrenching scene. But... Later on in the film, you see that, oh, these things are just in mass production. You know, he walks by the advert. They're they're selling all these things all the time. And there must be millions of joys out there, all designed to cater to the preferences of their customers. Does this knowledge, does this awareness somehow make that intimate relationship that they had and that we witnessed on screen and that seemed quite tender and affectionate somehow less valuable? yeah like, what's your it? answer I mean does answer? it I, the,
1: the same question is brought up actually again by the show that got their first Futurama when it has, Futurama has the episode with the Lucy Lou robot army and one of them is programmed to love Philip J Fry and I saw that scene was running through my head in Blade Runner 2049 because the exact thing happens where she says i'll always love you memory deleted <laughs> you know and then it's like that that tension that we're experiencing mm. here and you know you you mentioned this in the rundown about you know crossing uncanny valley that it might just be our habituation to these things that right now it seems like we couldn't develop an emotionally satisfying relationship with a robot for the same reason that 200 years ago the average person then who we'd consider a bigot now felt that you couldn't have an emotionally you know that your your british person thought you couldn't have an emotionally satisfying relationship with an irish person because they were you know subaltern and it's like that ain't right
0: you know and you get yes like so marriages across racial divides homosexuality all of these things were frowned upon historically and People uh, were dismissive or critical of the claim that you could have.
1: And it's important to remember that concerns of the interiority, the mental life of these other races were as real then as these concerns of the mental life or interiority of a companion robot seem to us to be now. And so it is a very yes, muddy yeah. area.
0: And, and there are a lot of people and there's an emerging interest in this whole co- concept or idea. You alluded to it earlier on of, you know, non-human personhood and the rights of non, non-human animals and also potentially non-human machines and whether they have rights and interests as well. Um, there's a guy, like David Gunkel, who uh, is a professor of communications and philosophy in Illinois and he's a book coming out next year specifically on this topic of robot rights but you know in general my perspective which is a little bit different from the perspective of the authors in the book who are skeptical of the notion of of loving and intimate relationships with robots is that I think you probably could have a loving and intimate relationship with a robot and largely on how does that robot behave and act towards you and what's the phenomenological experience of it like I don't think that people are going to get too caught up in the metaphysical questions for the very simple reason that all the doubts and skepticism that you can have about a relationship with a sufficiently sophisticated robot, and that qualification of sufficiently sophisticated is important here, you could have all the same metaphysical doubts or worries about a human partner. And in fact, this is rife in human intimate relationships. Anyway, we don't know what the other party's true intentions or feelings are. Does she really me? Is yeah, I mean, it? These concerns constantly arise in human relationships, and yet we, we still think that we can have good quality intimate relationships with other human beings you know maybe some people are more jaded and cynical about that possibility but you know (laughs) most people hold, hold out hope of it and i think we could have a very similar kinds of relationships with robots Provided they are sufficiently sophisticated, so that that is the critical point. But yes,
1: I just had this image of like a man and a woman sitting in a bar. They like, they both look like they just they're like beat up. They just survived, you know, some horrible heartbreak, and they clink their glasses together, and they're like, "Robots, am I right? Robots, yeah." You know, that's actually another massive spoiler alert for the film Her. That's basically how the film Her ends, right? You know, it's yeah, it, we, say, yeah. it crosses that line, and then you end up with the humans just sitting there being like, Are you kidding me? You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, so we have all the same problems with our robotic companions as we once had, yeah.
1: yeah, so it doesn't really solve anything, which I guess is sort of you know, it's an interesting uh, argument from Kevin Kelly that this is actually sort of all a red herring because economically there are a million reasons to evolve nervous systems and, you know, niche functions that are not human, that do other things that oh, we yeah, can't absolutely. do, you know? But I mean, it's just, but you're right. Like, uh, what you know, is your, your motive, you know, you, you brought it up earlier that it does seem as though the, you know, whether it's sensible or not, that the motive to the, create these things is just completely out of control. I wanted to touch on, something that you brought up here a moment ago which is the issue of choice and you know out of respect for your time maybe we can we can kind of like wrap it up here in a few but i just want to touch on this thing because this issue of well we'd have to find a way to make them choose to love us Mm -hmm. which means giving them the opportunity to say no and i was like when i was like reading this book I was imagining this sort of thought experiment where like you would if you're you know you're coming up with a new cryptographic key for your you know bitcoin wallet or whatever and you want to induce as much randomness as possible as much entropy into it so you get a truly random key and that's that's like where we are with this now is like trying to create at least, you know, the this, this semblance of choice in a system. And then you turn the thing on. You just like move your cursor around the screen and then you turn on your, your love bot and she looks at you and she says no. So you mm. reboot it and you move your cursor around and you just do it over and over until she says yes. And then you still get that like, okay, well, it's authentic, but it's not. Ultimately, she still doesn't have the choice because I can always turn her off and reinstantiate it and so you're getting into this ground that's like a theological argument about the existence of human free will and like Mm. how like god and then maybe this i'm just like totally off the rails here but i think it's interesting you know it's it's this is like an important consideration as we move into the godlike terrain of creating magical technologies that can love us back or might love us back right that this is the exact same argument that they give to yahweh in the old testament saying oh we have free will because god needs us to choose to love him like the creation is less it's less meaningful it's less yeah it no, i mean
0: that's a really that's actually a really interesting analogy between the kind of the theological problem of free will and human love for god and our relationship with the robots in the future and, and people have drawn those kind of Analogies before, but actually, specifically in relation to the idea of consent and freely giving love, that's a, I haven't thought about that before. But that is fascinating because to me, it's never made sense. Uh, like I'm not religious, uh, so um <laughs> apologies to anyone who is for what I'm about to say. But like, it, no, it's never made sense to me that kind of idea of like what is the story of creation, like what are we all here for? That our divine creator essentially, and this is going to put it in very pejorative terms, but anyway, got <laughs> bored one day wanted something to play around with and have fun with created humankind or life let's say be less uh, species specific and wanted to have a valuable intimate relationship with his creation and to do that he has to allow them to freely choose him Um, and he's going to condemn all the other people to hell if they don't freely choose him like so it seems there's a very odd kind of tensions in this idea about the value of free will and free choice when it comes to that kind of theological question about what's the meaning of life and what is the trajectory and ultimate purpose of humanity. So, I mean, just to kind of put my own cards on the table, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a free will skeptic. I'm, mm. I'm not entirely convinced about the notion that humans have anything that approximates the classical ideal of free will. I think we do have choice, but it's, um, it's a more nuanced idea, And I think you could design and create a robot that had choice and had the ability to choose, okay, in a meaningful way, which is basically equivalent to the kinds of choices that human beings have. So, again, I think this um, issue of being able to design a robot that could freely choose to love us, I think it's not insurmountable. It might be a difficult engineering challenge, but I think it's not insurmountable. But this gets to the deeper point is that, that, well, would we want to create such a, a being? Because everyone just wants to be able to, instantly gratify themselves with the robot like that isn't that kind of the motivation the economic incentive behind creating this isn't this why people would prefer a robot to a human being if, if the robot is basically equivalent to the human being then what's the advantage of it we get we get back to that right. point you raised about her like right, cause well, then, it's, then it's got legal
1: protections too probably as soon as it can yeah. choose to say no then you can't turn it off and you just have to give it a job you know that's <laughs> that's
0: yeah, no. So that, that's a problem. And, and Michael Housecolor in the book has a chapter on this. Okay. The title of the chapter is um, "It's called uh, Automatic Sweethearts for Transhumanists." Mm. I think it's a play on a, a quote from William James in the late 1800s. William James wrote about the idea of an automatic lover, like an automaton or robot lover, and one of the earlier people to write about this. And the the title of of Michael's chapter is a play on this, where he kind of critiques the transhumanist movement a lot, because what do transhumanists want? They just want perfect freedom of choice and ability to satisfy their choices. And I think Michael's overarching philosophy or idea is that that's just not really compatible or sensible with the messy reality of human life and human relationships. You can't have these perfect intimate connections they're not going to be the same as the kind of intimate connections you have with human beings because we do have some randomness or messiness in our interactions and some give or take and need for compromise and mutuality. Uh, so you can't just have a robot that perfectly satisfies all your sexual and intimate whims and have that be as valuable or as meaningful as the kind of relationship that you have with a, with a human being.
1: Totally. I mean, that's the Hakeem Bey argument against utopia. You know, as he says that basically the the ideal of any given generation, if we were to make it a reality, it's stale within a generation, and one one generation's utopia becomes the next generation's fascist nightmare, and so you never this idea of a perfect community is a moving target, and so you he bases his whole political philosophy on what he calls you know an ontological anarchy, and so you can't ever get there, and it's the same. You look at it in terms of an evolutionary dynamics lens right mm. then it's like you can't just a- arrive at a stable final functional fit where the organism is perfectly adapted to a static environment like your needs are constantly changing but i think the more interesting critique and i and i'm going to put my cards on the table here with you is that i am also a free skeptic and and i think that this is this ultimately dissolves some of these considerations i think this sort of may be the sort of Mainstream cultural answer to some of the questions raised in this book is that by the time we actually get there, by the time we're actually asking these questions as a society of sex bot consumers and sex bot creators, you know, like Yuval Harari's religion of Silicon Valley, that is, you know, the informational totalism that reduces the human being to a series of computational programs. That this will be the sort of mainstream secular philosophy, at least, you know, if trends continue. And so the closer the sex bot gets to being a human being, the closer the human being gets to regarding itself as qualitatively indistinct from the sex bot that we start to identify as robots as much as human beings and the the line between made and and grown technologies gets fuzzier and fuzzier and we finally sort of just kiss at the asymptote between human and machine some of these questions are just gonna fade into irrelevance because I think that you know the emerging major philosophy here is that we aren't these liberal modern actors with a locus of agency that you know that everything that we want is conditioned by our environments and our evolutionary histories. And so, what the hell is informed consent anyway?
0: Mm. So, like, one idea that I crops up again and again in your work and your conversations, I think this is fair to say in a way, is that it's kind of like getting this more holistic, grander perspective on the human condition. And, you know, one of the features of the Silicon Valley religion, as Harari calls it, although I don't always agree with him calling everything a religion, but <laughs> yeah. let's set that to one side, it's, it's it's this kind of disaggregation of the functionality of human of humans. So at the moment we are these embodied, functionally integrated beings to a large extent. Although maybe there's some disaggregation of our functionality as well at the moment through the current technosphere. And this is just a, a kind of a common feature of the information revolution. And as you say, we're evolving into a different kind of state or mode of existence where we kind of embrace this disaggregation of our functionality. And yeah, by the time we create robots that are sufficiently sophisticated entities for us to engage in intimate relationships with them, we will have fully drunk the Kool-Aid on this (laughs) dataism revolution and be perfectly happy with that kind of disaggregated uh, intimate connection. However, like I want to say something, because this is something I've only thought about recently, and it's not in the book. But I've just been thinking about it in relation to this debate around robots, and it it might be like a cause for optimism when it comes to robots versus other kinds of technology of sex, which is that, you know, a critique of the Internet age is this unbundling of both of content. Mm -hmm. You know, traditionally, when you bought a newspaper, you had to buy a bundle of articles and there was some diversity in scope to those articles. Mm -hmm. news sports entertainment you got them all under one in one unit and there was an economic value to doing this as well for you know the theater critic in reality is probably not a very economically saleable role or function like not many people are going to buy articles single articles from a critic of classical music or something like that but you know if you bundle that critics work in with the rest of the newspaper, it becomes valuable and useful for people. And people might kind of be exposed to this, something that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. But what the internet does and what the, the algorithmic structure of the internet is to facilitate unbundling of content so that you can just access whatever it is that you want. And this is actually a critique or idea that has also emerged in discussions about pornography and the ethics of pornography. Uh, and a lot of the debates and concerns that people have about sex robots tend to echo or repeat the debates and concerns people have about pornography. So right. I'm very interested in the connections between those two conversations. I know there are some people who have a very rosy picture or idea of pornography, an artistic view of pornography, which is you know, the, the porn film can be an artwork. There's a whole movement in, let's say feminist pornography, for example, which is creating porn that doesn't just perpetuate the male gaze and Uh, focuses on women's pleasure and what women find interesting but it's all what's important to that kind of view of pornography is that porn is a unified artwork in a sense it's it's a coherent narrative or story that people can access and they can be exposed to this different understanding of the modalities of pleasure but the problem again with the internet porn is that it disaggregates all of that you can you can (laughs) access everything in short one or two minute clips
1: narrative collapse is what doug rushkoff calls it yeah
0: yeah, so you're not you're not accessing the narrative anymore. You're just accessing the content that is immediately gratifying to you, and and this may be one of the main problems. And I'm 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 not necessarily saying I agree with these problems, but uh, this critique. But the people who view internet porn as particularly problematic um, often kind of highlight this feature of it that it just it disaggregates erotic material so that it, you know it's just all about the immediate sensory experience of it. I think this is one reason to be optimistic about robots. Okay? Because <laughs> robots are, if nothing else, they are embodied, at least in by definition, they're supposed to be embodied entities. You know, it's not just about pure and immediate gratification. You're getting something from a robot that you're not getting from a simple masturbatory aid, for example. So it it, it creates this embodied, integrated, functional whole that you have to interact with. Sorry, hole is an unfortunate term to use there. <laughs> hole is mean, has
1: taken on a new meaning in this
0: I mean hole with a W H at the start, just to be clear.
1: <laughs> well, well Yes Yes. Well, I mean again to, to Blade Runner twenty forty nine this, you have a million joy partner holograms, but every single replicant, ironically, is unique, is individual. Yeah. You know, even when they try to reproduce one exactly the same way, it ends up with a different eye color or whatever. So they're playing with that same, that boundary there that in the digital space, you have illimited replicability. But when it comes to flesh and blood, there is a uniqueness there that makes it a very different consideration.
0: Yeah. and uh, Well, obviously, like my positive view of sex robots here in this is there are limitations to that because presumably they rely heavily on you know cloud-based artificial intelligence which will be replicable and repeatable that seems to be the way that this technology is going but nevertheless i I do think it's an interesting point that the criticism of internet porn is usually on focuses on this disaggregation of content the unbundling of content and one of the potentially beneficial features of robots vis-a-vis porn is that they are bundled in some way
1: Although it is I you know we got to make the point that what is a dildo if not an unbundled sexual experience. And there's oh, No, that, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I can imagine another uh, sort of point that I'm trying to make in this book is that the future isn't more of one thing or the other but really this it's, it's more of everything. It's this increasing diversity of niches and actors to fill those different niches, right? So I imagine your book as the herald This this coming Cambrian explosion of sexual technologies that makes rule 34 seem positively childish and that you know marrying your sex bot is going to seem positively quaint in a hundred years But um, I don't know. Yeah Maybe we should, this would be a fun conversation to pick up uh, with some other folks. I've been meaning to put a, like, panels of people together. I don't know if you'd ever be down for that, but uh, I think you'd be a yeah, I mean, fine person. If, the, to show.
0: if we can arrange this, work it out in the calendar, I'd be happy to participate cool. sometime.
1: So uh, this seems like a pretty, reason, a pretty good spot to wrap it up, you think? How can people yeah. find you and your work and continue exploring this topic?
0: Yeah. So we've got two sources, I suppose. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at John Danaher on Twitter. I, I was the first John Danaher on Twitter, so I don't have any number or anything after my name. Um, there are others, though, uh, including a very f- famous uh, jujitsu instructor, instructor. But uh, that's not me. And then I have a blog called uh, Philosophical Disquisitions. It's a, a long-winded title, but I'm sticking with it. It's my... Yeah, I've been I've had this blog for nearly a decade now, so I'm not going to change the name at this point in time, even though people have asked me to do so. It's an old-fashioned term for a extended analysis or discussion of something, a disquisition. So. I've
1: actually read your blog bef- like years ago. Now that Already? I, I, I yeah. didn't really Yeah, so that's
0: yeah. it's cool. Yeah, the, unbundle- it the unbundling of content is that you just accessed <laughs> yeah. individualized content. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the, the blog is probably the main hub for all of my online activities and you can access lots of articles that i've written there nearly a thousand at this point in time and all my academic work and videos and podcasts that i do myself so that's what i'd say check out
1: also the book
0: definitely oh yeah of course the book which i'm trying to sell
1: (laughs) (laughs) and that that was again that that was with co-author or co-editor
0: co-editor neil MacArthur, and we also there are 18 different authors in the book. Some chapters are co-authored with different people. I've co-authored a chapter in there as well. Um, so it's a diversity of perspectives. You've, you've spent the past hour or whatever listening to me go on about this topic, but you can access other opinions on it as well if you read the book, which is always a good thing.
1: I assume there are diagrams and other things. If someone has a more like comprehensive interest in this subject –
0: we we actually don't have many diagrams. We have some graphs and images within it, but um, they're of data. So
1: mm. add your yeah. own, or you know, add add your, your robot. Maybe that's what that's what you like. That's what. Yeah,
0: yeah. People if people really want know. to see the technology itself, I do recommend uh, checking out the Future of Sex uh, website. Um, nice. It's a really good site for all that stuff.
1: Well, cool, John. It's been a, a total treat to have you on. It's been uh, it's totally titillated my etheric erogenous zones, <laughs> as it were.
0: That was the intention, of course.
1: Yes. Well, have a beautiful afternoon, and again, you know, congrats on your upcoming marriage, and thanks f- for this really fun conversation.
0: Okay, cool. It was, it was nice talking to you. Uh, I'm glad I got to kind of explore different angles on this topic instead of repeating the same sound bites over and over again.
1: Thanks again for listening. I hope you found that episode as satisfying as I did. Future fossils is part of the MindPod Network with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity, The Astral Hustle. It's All Happening, and a number of other really, really good ones. So go there, subscribe to them all. And if you want to dive into the Future Fossils conversation, there's nearly 1,200 people in our Facebook discussion group. I post links I find extremely fascinating. They're on a several times daily basis, typically. And again, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com. Slash Michael Garfield, where I have a frankly ridiculous amount of both free and patron-only posts. So go there and uh, have a great day, week, month, year, decade, generation, century, empire, civilization. Beyond.